Well, good morning to you. Um, let me open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll start our text today. Uh, Father, we come to you, and we rest in your love, and we rest in that true promise that you are good all the time. You are good through the hardest days and through the lightest. Um, Father, as we get ready this morning, I just think in the context of the world that my eyes have seen, Lord, there have been people who have been suffering with violence and war, shootings, um, new cases of cancer, various sufferings, job loss, um, crushing depression, um, addictions that are overtaking them, deception of heart, foolishness, uh, believing lies, Lord, just these things just surround us. But you are greater than all of these things. And you conquer them all by your Spirit. We look forward to the day that you will conquer all these things permanently and utterly and remove them in wonderful, glorious, perfect, careful, compassionate judgment. But till then, Father, we need your help. We need your help by your Spirit. We need your help that we might think clearly and believe clearly. And so we ask that as we listen to your word today that you would show the difference between what is true and what is in our hearts and our minds that you would um, let us see the difference and, and believe you instead of believing the lies of our hearts, um, the lies of our cultural religions that we still hold so much and we may not even know it, Father. So I pray for your help with that. I pray for your help for us too also, Lord, as we just think through the souls that are around us who ba so badly need you. And um, Father, there's a lot in today's text that helps us understand them and, and communicate with them and, and show them you. So I, I pray that you would please help us by your spirit to listen and to be helped. And for me, Lord, that you would guide the words of my mouth, that you might be glorified and that we might be stirred today. And lastly, Lord, I pray for anybody who is listening online or here in person this morning who, who doesn't truly know you. Father, I pray that you would make that clear to them. And that they'd have the joy of repenting and running to you and finding you as their great adoptive father through the work of Jesus. So we pray for all these things, for your glory and for our joy in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we are in the book of Romans. You definitely want to have the book of Romans open in front of you on your lap or on your phone if you so wish. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 2. There are different types of sermons in this world. So there are Easter sermons, and an Easter sermon is like this. An Easter sermon is like where you can get dressed in your cute, light, weight, springy affair and wander out with some family members, and you can go to the orchard of a sermon, and you can clip off a couple of like manicured apples, right, and you put them in a nice little basket. It's kind of easy, easy access. Boop, boop, get a little basket with some things in that, in that basket of sermon. And then some sermons are like harvesting potatoes, and I don't know if you've seen how potatoes are harvested. I'm just going to assume maybe you don't, but it's a digging affair. It's like, it's like digging down the dirt and popping it up and on your hands and knees and you're sorting through dirt and potatoes. This is a little more of a potato sermon today. Um, it's a thick text. Um, I appreciate Enoch reading it. Um, I, just, I was telling the guys I appreciate any time we see the word circumcision said in a passage so many times, you, know, like you hope you're not being asked to read it. So Enoch, thank you for that. Um, I think when you're reading it, you're like, man, I just said that word 72 times. Um, it's a long text. It's a complex text. 
And I want to explain it in, in this way. In the book of Romans so far, Paul has never been to Romans. Paul is the apostle, right, representing Christ. He is writing to a church that he's never been at, a church that seven years ago was largely founded with a large Judaistic influence. So Jewish people were bringing the gospel there. Church started. And so there's a strong influence of Judaism, and it's early in the church. So everyone's still not really clear on, like, how much of the old Jewish stuff should we do in the new Christianish stuff? So seven years ago, uh, the Jews got the boot out of Romans, out of, the, out of Rome. They got kicked out by the emperor. So now you've got mostly these Gentile, non-Jewish Christians in the church and they have largely been influenced by this heavy Judaistic group saying, all right, let's keep looking back at the Old Testament and all the Old Testament circum, uh, circumstances and all the, the celebrations. Let's go over there and look at that. And so the Jewish people rolled out. And so you have a largely a Gentile crowd w- trying to sort things out and like, how do those, this, this Jewish stuff work out? And by this time, you might have a few Jewish people leaking back in. But... If you would follow the God of the Jews, you would technically become a Jewish person, a proselyte. So that's the context of what's happening. But people are not only not understanding how God has moved them past this old covenant, this old Judaistic way, but they're also using the old way wrong. And Paul's going to correct a whole lot of things. He's got 16 chapters of correction in this book. And in the beginning, what he's, usually, what he's using is he's actually using the correct use of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to correct their thinking. Because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was from God. It was true. If you wanted to access God, you need to understand him. He revealed himself in the Old Testament, this Old Covenant. And in the Old Testament, you have origins, where we came from, history. Then you have these series of contracts, shall we say, that God made, he called covenants, with a number of key ones. And the first one's Abraham, and that's the one where we learn about salvation by faith. And then he adds a new one to it, and it's an obedience called, a code, and that's called the Mosaic Covenant, or I'll call it the Mosaic Code today. Um, and, and it's also ca- often called the Law. And finally, there's another third big one that's put in this, which is the Davidic Covenant. And that's where we learn a lot about exactly who this Messiah would be someday. So there's these series of contracts laid out in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, when they step back from it, they would simply call it the law. Or they'd break it down and say the law and the prophets. But they'd often just call it the law. And in this passage here today, Paul is referring to the law again and again and again, the law. And he is talking about the heart of God found in the Mosaic Code. Okay? The, the marching instructions for how God wants he wanted his Old Testament people to, to live and carry out their faith in Jesus. And it came from God. It wasn't creation of Moses. And it wasn't tradition. It came from God. It was good. And it is consistent with God's heart because it came from God, as is the new way, which is consistent from God's heart. So the things that have been in God's heart all along show up in every version of the contract that he gives. And God gave a new, and he said there's a new contract coming, a new covenant. And when that one comes, I'm putting away the Mosaic one, the old one. So Paul is going to be explained to them over this book and in Galatians and other places about how God has put to bed the Mosaic Covenant by fulfilling it and has brought this new way where now he actually God is indwelling inside the individual believer leading through the, through the Word of God exposed by what the Spirit wrote and then specified by how God would lead the person individually. Paul's getting there in this, but he's starting off the letter saying, hey, let's just start with simple things. 
that whole law piece that you guys are excited about, been following, let's use the law to correct what's going on here because the very same heart of God when he gave the law is still the same heart here. And so Paul easily could have corrected these things out of New Covenant teaching, but for the sake of where this at, he's going back in their old teaching. He's using the old teaching to explain how their hearts are thinking wrongly. And then later on in the book, he'll flip it and go, okay, but we no longer follow the old covenant. Now we follow the new covenant. But right now he's using the old covenant. He's explaining how what they're doing is not in harmony with what they've always believed before. So he's showing them. He's correcting them. So therefore, there are terms here that through this time, I'm going to use interchangeably. Because most of us didn't wake up this morning going, man, what do you do with the Mosaic Code? What do you do with circumcision? I kind of guarantee no one thought about it until you listened to Enoch read. Um, probably. Maybe. So that's, we're in a little different world here, okay? And the things that Paul is teaching them by the law are all applicable to us by the new covenant. That makes sense. I told you to meet potatoes. You're going to have to dig. You're going to have to work a little bit. You're going to get some dirt on your hands and thinking. It's a hard one to wrestle with. So when, when Paul refers to Jews, I'm going to refer to possibly as Jews, but I might just refer to us as Christians at this point in time. And when he refers to the law, I might refer to the scriptures. When he refers to circumcision, I might refer to ceremonies, baptism, or Christian ceremonies that God's given us. So I will use those interchangeably as we go along. If it's confusing, by all means, that's what coffee and donuts are for in the back. You can talk to me, and I'll do my best to make that clear or show you what I don't know. Okay? So we are in this book. Um, Paul is talking to these, to these, these Roman believers and he's using the t- old teaching of the old testament to help them know and understand what they're doing and how they're actually thinking in an incorrect way so we are in romans chapter 2 verses 12 and it comes right on the heels uh, comes right on the heels of verse 11 where we introduced that god is an impartial judge not like a Western judge like we have. A judge in the scriptures is a person who not only decides and declares what is true and right, but he also executes the punishment and the reward. Okay, so he's a, a twofer in, in the scriptures. So he says God is a judge and God is perfectly impartial to what he does. And so therefore, these verses here talks about how he will be a fair and good judge and how he assesses the hearts of his followers. So Romans 2 12. Uh, title of our sermon today is When God is Your Audience. When God is Your Audience. And the first piece is this that God will bring every person to rightful accountability. Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned, that's everyone, lived, lived acting out rebellion against God without the law, without exposure to Mosaic co- Code, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he's addressing in their mind. He's building a case for that God is a perfect and impartial judge, both to those who say they follow God and those who say they don't follow God. All those Romans 1 people that say they don't follow God and all these Romans 2 people say we do follow God. He goes, he's an impartial judge and he will judge perfectly. So for all who have sinned without the law, that's Gentiles, people who have not been exposed to Mosaic Code, will also perish without that law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So if you sin as a Gentile, non-Jewish person, you'll perish. And if you sin as a person who says you're a Jewish person, in our case a Christian person, but you say it, but it's not true of you, you also will be judged. So all people are sinners. Those not clinging to Jesus will be rightly condemned by Jesus. But he's saying this with two effects. Number one, 
be at peace. He doesn't make a mistake, and he judges fairly. He is impartial in how he judges. So the judge is coming. Probably one of the greatest questions is, how good is that judge? And he goes, the judge is very good. The judge judges perfectly, fairly on both sides. But it's also a warning to be careful. Too much is given, much is required. To whom much information, warning, and promise has been given, much be required. God is holding people accountable to what he has exposed them to. So when in the Old Testament he exposed you to a greater part of his character than he did the Philistines next, next door, those bunch of uncircumcised guys, you are held more accountable because God has shown you his name. He's shown you his ways. He's shown you his promises. He's shown you his character. You are under higher accountability than the Philistine neighbors. Even though they are under accountability, you get a higher one. So it is a warning of caution. And the caution is true for overt unbelief if you hear the things of God and say, I don't care, I don't believe. God is warning you, do not do this. I am a perfect, impartial judge, and I'll hold you accountable to what I've given you. But the second audience, which is very parallel to us as Cross City Church and believers wherever we're at that are watching this, we are people who claim to be God's people. And most of us are God's people, but amongst us, there's always some of us that are confused or faking it, Maybe even faking it to ourselves. We don't even know we're faking it. There is this category of inauthenticity. And so this is equally true for us because we, in amongst us, maybe you, maybe me, I hope not, but in the beginning of chapter 2 in Andrew's sermon, he talked about presuming. You've presumed upon the kindness of God. You might be a person holding the name of Jesus, wearing the Christian necklace, been baptized, all that kind of stuff. You identify as Christian on your Facebook page even. But it's not true. It's not true. You're presuming upon him. You're carrying his name, but it's not really falling with all his heart. So this is very relevant to us because this might be us. If you are sitting amongst God's people and identifying as being one of God's people, but kind of so-so, uh, there, is, there is a warning in this. While he says be at peace because God's a fair judge, he's also warning us being very, very careful about being around my name and calling me yours, but not actually being mine. Romans 2.13, 4. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. Old Testament, 100% true. It's not those who hear the Old Testament that are made righteous for, but those who actually believe and follow it out. Because if you actually believe it, God will transform you and you will start following. Real faith has real fruit. So it's not those who say, or identify with Jesus is actually those who are following Jesus. How do you follow Jesus? You are made new by putting your faith in Jesus. You become saved, born again, by faith in Christ. And then God's Spirit starts to work in you and change you, so you start actively following Him. You start looking more and more and more and more righteous, just like Jesus is righteous. Your worth is never there. Your worth is always in what Jesus has done for you. But you're actively being transformed to look like the righteous Jesus. You're marked by it. So God's condemning judgment will be fair, demanding a higher accountability to those whom he's invited and warned the most. And so it's comfort that God's fair. It's warning that God calls us and holds us accountable to when he's given us more. And so for most of us who are sitting in this room, we're sitting around the teaching of God's word, you've got to do something with it. You know, he brings his truth to you. What, what are you going to do? What, where are you going to put that? Are you going to put that in really something that condemns you by blowing it off or saying, I don't care, or are you actually going to believe it and receive the blessings 
and joy and benefit and rewards from believing God's ways. Second one, God's ethics are written on every heart. God's ethics are written on every heart. Romans 2.14. And I have to move through our text kind of fast today because there's a lot of text. And uh, I want to be able to have a little time to unpack this for us in our application of our life. Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles, remember those are the non-Jewish people, who do not have the law, the Mosaic Code, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Told you, potatoes. But this is really good because this is really helpful in understanding your friends and your neighbors and the people around you. So there's some stuff in here that's going to be very, very helpful. This is why Paul's digging into this. This is why Paul is actually doing two things. He's correcting them by their old teaching, and then he's actually teaching them a lot of the, the ins and outs about how this has always worked. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the Mosaic Code, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. They have self-presented God's ethics against themselves, to themselves, even though they don't have the law. So even though they don't have the law, which is the official Mosaic Code, what's happening here? He said, okay, so let's, let's talk old time, old time, Old Testament. You have the Jews, you have the Philistines. When the Philistines, who don't have the Mosaic Code, start doing things like the Mosaic Code, like they start being generous, or they start punishing murder, when they start calling lies, lies, God says that when the Gentiles who don't have the code start resonating with the code, that presents to themselves the fact that, that God is there and his ethic is written on their hearts. The, the ways that they're responding to good or bad, not all of them, but the ones that are coming up there are true, are testifying to them that there is a law there, even though they didn't get to see it. The scrolls haven't come down from Jerusalem to them, but God has written these things on his heart. Why do I say that? 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness in their thoughts, in, in their conflicting thoughts, either to either excuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So let me go back and read that one more time. Just follow me with your eyes there. No, follow me. Follow your text with your eyes. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So the intended work of the law being an ethical standard that exposes moral failure and condemnation resulting conviction. So them following God-given morality, the hints of it that are still in their heart, that is having the law effect. The effect of the law was to show the need for us of a redeemer. Shows the presence of sin. So those real morals coming up are showing God's law to them, bringing them to conviction, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And when does this accusation or excusing happening? It happens on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So at the end of history, Jesus comes back and judges. And he says at that time, part of the judgment is people who have not had the law, part of the judgment process for them is that their hearts will testify to the fact that God is there because God had written his law on their hearts, demonstrated through their conscience. So what do you do with this? This is very, very helpful for us as believers when we're trying to share the gospel people. God's law, God's ethics are still written on their hearts. Their hearts may be hardened, they may be deceived, may be spiritually blind, they might be able to only make out the shortest little part of it, but God's 
ethics and God's law are still written on their hearts, and you can reference it in conversation. I reference it all the time in conversation when I'm talking to people who don't know Jesus. Um, I, look, I, look for, I look culturally for how is this still alive? How do we see it in our culture? In our culture, there's a lot of things, part of, shall we say, God's law and ethic, that are kind of blown away, right? All kinds of sexual ethic, all kinds of individualism, those kind of things are just blown away. But there's still these ones that are hot, right? Um, compassion. There's a lot of that still kind of burning here and there. Um, we, see, we see the ideas of like, Justice. In our culture, a secularistic culture, justice is a big deal. So I'm looking for these places where you see the smoldering bits of God's ethic are still alive, and we can reference it. So when I talk to my friends about them, them saying that they are simply, I'm, I just am simply, I'm not a person of faith, I'm just simply a person of science, I do what I see. I just tell them, well, that's not really true. God says his law is written in your heart, and you show it because you think that murder is wrong. You think that stealing is wrong. You think that rape is wrong. Those are all parts of God's law still written in their heart, accessible by you to be able to talk to them about because they can't pin those things on things they see. So it becomes very, very helpful as we talk to people, knowing that this is still underneath their heart. Even if you can't win the argument, even if they're not listening to you, even if they mock you and walk away, God says his law is written on their hearts, and you have the ability to reference it. And it's incredibly helpful incredibly effective and when the spirit of god is stirring god identifies it for him shows it to him they know there is right they know there is wrong so we can count on a reference that god's ethical law is written on the hearts of all people third god's name is degraded by hypocritical followers so our first one is this god will bring every person to rightful accountability he will rightfully judge perfectly everybody which should bring peace to our hearts and also should bring caution to us Number two, God's ethics are written on every heart. Very helpful to know that every soul, everywhere, on every island where there's nobody sitting there, that is on their heart. It is speaking to them. It is, their eyeballs are seeing that, they're on that little like 10 foot wide, you know, patch of sand with that one coconut tree. And with their peepers, they're seeing the coconut tree and the clouds go by and the currents and the starfish that comes up on the shore and God is saying, Romans 1, I am testifying to them of my invisibilities through the things that I've clearly made and they see and they testify to me. And then inside their heart, they know it was wrong to kill the other survivor that they killed, right? They know that's in their heart. They know it's wrong to steal. They know there are these ethics. So God is testifying to them to their eyes and in their heart, wherever they're at in the whole world. Our third one is this, God's name is degraded by hypocritical followers. Look at Romans uh, 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, or in our case, a Christian, and rely on the law, the Bible, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what's excellent. So what he's going to do, he's going to say, if you say that you're a follower of God, and you rightly hold to these things, and these are true. If you are a believer, you boast in God, that's good, 18, and Noah's will and approve what's excellent, that's true, because you're instructed from the law, the scripture is absolutely true. Verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are darkness, and that is true of you as a Christian, because you have been exposed to the light of the world, right? God has called us to be a light in the darkness. And true, verse 20, and you're an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children. So this isn't jobs, but these are, these are spiritual things that God has called us to that we instruct the foolish, like we were, 
with the truth and wisdom of God, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge or truth. So these are all true. He goes, so if you are a follower of God and you fancy these things be true of you, which are true, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And while you preach against stealing, do you, not, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Probably syncretism and some foreign bad gain from how that would happen. Do you who boast in the law, shall we say the scriptures, you dishonor God by breaking it. You break the law, the scriptures. Verse 24, for as it is written, quoting from Isaiah 52, 5, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here's the problem. If you carry the name of Jesus, let's say you're hanging out, you say I'm a Christian. Let's say you've been baptized um, and you're really carrying the name of Jesus because that's what baptism is. You're being baptized in the name of Christ. So you're carrying the name of Jesus. So if you're carrying the name of Jesus and you're holding to his teaching, which we have, but you live hypocritically, continually. This isn't wrestling with sin. This is something you're perpetually doing that you're saying God hates this, but then you do it. You find your way to do it. You make excuse of it. Maybe you've done it so long you're just callous to it. But you preach one thing and you live a different way. When you live hypocritically, it has a horrible effect, which is blasphemy. So, so let, let's, just, just, let's just think about this. Why did God make us? Audience feedback. For his glory, to bring God glory. Okay, thank you. Could have got the kids up here on that one. Okay, so we are for God's glory. We glorify God by letting him be seen more clearly, adorning his name, um, cleaning the windows of life more clearly so the world can look out and see him, right? Putting up the telescope so you can see him more clearly. That's glorifying God, letting God be exalted. Blasphemy, the word there, means injurious speech, degrading speech. You are, instead of glorifying, you are minimizing God. That's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy are words that degrade and take away from something. You either glorify or you blaspheme something. It's glorify or anti-glorify. And anti-glorify is a really ugly word. We call it blasphemy. You remember in chapter 1, what was wrong with those people who were openly rejecting the Lord? They were smothering, suppressing the truth. So they were hiding the truth. In this chapter, when you're living hypocritically by saying, I am the Lord's, but then not living that way, you are doing something very similar to suppressing the truth. You are degrading the truth. So you're not trying to hide it. You're just trying to put it on high discount. You're saying God is not that great. He's not that good. He's not that worthy. He's not that authoritative. He hasn't spoken those ways. That is the effect you have when you carry the name of Jesus and live in hypocrisy. You blaspheme the name and glory of God. The great tragedy isn't that you get busted for it. The great tragedy is God's reputation, glory, and the gospel is tarnished. That's the great tragedy. And until you come to know Jesus, you'll never understand that that's the great tragedy because you always think that me getting busted for it is the great tragedy. Salvation, when we understand who God is, is this great flip. It's not really me that matters in the end. It is God that matters in the end. So blasphemy is a horrible thing. It's a, 
Hypocritical, hey, that's a cultural value we hate. No one likes that. Right? That's not a cool thing. Hey, hypocrites.com. Uh, hypocrites is, is one of those growing ethics, one of those glowing ethics of God's law still written in our cultural heart. And it's something we can actually help point to. But don't we know, don't we all know friends and family that have sat under the effect of this? They have been around either television or personally around Christians who have consistently been hypocritical and it has darkened their view of God, darkened their view of the gospel. They have a harder time seeing and listening to it because people who've carried the name of Jesus have consistently lived contrary to that message. Unrepentant hypocrisy is queued up for a unique intensity of God's judgment because it is blasphemy against his glory. So to get truth, God, theology, and life right, but to not genuinely and completely follow it yourself is hypocrisy, and hypocrisy degrades God, making you a blasphemer. Our fourth, fourth piece of our, of our passage today, um, I, I need to get down, down dirty on this concept of circumcision. All right. I had a little quiz in the car last night asking uh, some of my family, like, hey, do you guys know what this is? And the answers made me laugh so hard that I will not share them. Um, I sat at my desk last night repeating the answers to myself, and it made me happy. Okay, so what is circumcision? Here's what circumcision is. Here's my finely crafted statement on this. Um, if you need to know more, I'll be hanging out back at the donuts in the back, and we can get down on this, okay? What is circumcision? Um, now, God asks, calls people as soon as they give themselves over to Jesus to physically demonstrate that they belong to him by this process of baptism. What, we put you in our horse trough, dunk you underwater, old used gone, New use here. Know me no longer as the old Ange. I am now the Ange that belongs to Jesus. You're bearing his name. Okay? This is the sign that Jesus has given what it means to follow him. Back before Jesus, for yea, verily about 1,500 years, there was a different sign to following God. And that was the sign of circumcision that God had given, which was a ceremony to identify people as belonging to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that was a procedure, a only male, a male procedure that in the most intimate of ways made a personal and public statement that this person and everything under this person's management belonged to God and the Jews. So contrary to our modern life with private hot bathrooms, with hot showers, something like that, we had a public showering society. This is an issue out there because of the way society would bathe. It's known. It's like you don't have a nice little glass shower in your house. You just go down to the, the public showers. So until we had modern society where it's all private, it was all public. So the issues of circumcision, non-circumcision was a public affair, and you all knew it. It was an open, discussed thing. And actually, in some of the pagan religions, they would demand uncircumcision. So there's this big debate on like surgical procedures, pro and con, and all kinds of stuff. It's a great discussion someday. But that's circumcision. It is a male procedure given by God in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Code, to identify that person and everything of the person's belongings to belong to the God of Israel. And it is no longer something that God asks of those who would follow him. The sign now that we follow him is baptism. And men and women together, kids and old, when we come to know Jesus, say, come know him, put your faith in Jesus, and Christ says, go be baptized in my name, publicly proclaiming that you belong to me. A far better, far better experience. Okay, so here we are. Uh, our fourth piece is this. Um, true following comes from the heart. 
True following comes from the heart. So I just want to get that circumcision description out of the way just so we can kind of move through the argument of what's being said. We're going to learn in this here some of the value of why that was there. And it's parallel to how there are all kinds of religious ceremonies for us now. So now circumcision isn't something God asks of us. We still do other Christian ceremonies. Baptism, Lord's Supper, if you're Grace Brethren, do some foot washing. Uh, we sing songs. We do certain celebrations. We celebrate Easter and Christmas. We do a whole bunch of celebrations, some of them in the text. Some of them have been culturally made. So we have all kinds of celebrations we still knew, and the principles transfer over. Verse 25, 2.25. For, in Old Testament Judaism, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. So again, this is an argument made in people who are trying to understand the Old Covenant. Paul is not saying, hey, for you guys, Cross City Church in 2021, or the church in Geneva in 1500s, or the church in, in, uh, in Turkey in 1000, or 500, or even the church that will be at the end of this, this century. This is not what God is calling his believers to follow. He's, he's getting into their argument because it was of great value in the Old Covenant. For circumcision indeed is of great value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision the ceremonial identification has no point so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts or the rules of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision so if he is unaware of god's command for the old testament followers to be circumcised if he's following god as much as he understands of him isn't that really what it means to follow him Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. God values obedience more than ceremony. He always has and he always will. God values obedience more than ceremony. What does it mean to follow God? It doesn't mean to go do the ceremonial thing, take on the name, do the ceremonies, those kind of things. Uh, wear the shirts, it means to truly follow him from the heart. And the first place that's tested is obedience. He stands and teaches us. He speaks the words, we follow him. Like the disciples, he said, come, follow me. And they're like, okay, I'm going to follow you. They didn't say, quick, let's do something ceremonial. They followed him. So God exposes himself in simple obedience. We follow him. He values obedience more than uh, ceremony. And while God does delight from many ceremonial acts, Old Testament, he lo- God loved these things he gave. He, lo- he gave these festivals that they would take part of. He gave these ceremonies. He gave circumcision. He gave sacrifices. He had a lot of things he loved. But if you think back in Israel's history, if you've been reading, you'll remember Jesus saying, like, I don't delight in sacrifices. He does delight in sacrifices. But he doesn't delight in sacrifices that come from a heart of junk, a heart that's not obedient to following the Lord. He would delight in sacrifices. He would delight in ceremonies when they came out of the heart that was submitted to him and then would follow him and do these, these, shall we say, lesser things of ceremony that would bring God pleasure. But he felt so strongly about those lesser ceremonies that were done by a resisting heart that he said, I take no delight in them. Don't even touch them. Jesus likewise says this in the New Testament. He says there's greater and lesser things, right? You guys, he says, you Pharisees, you guys are tithing mint and dill and rue, right? They're, they're, they're measuring out with their little Weight Watcher scale, like how much mint they should be tithing back. And meanwhile, they're just blowing justice out of the water and they're oppressing the poor and they're hurting people and lying to people. He goes, I don't care about the mint as much as I care about your heart. 
Follow me from the heart, and then you go into all the ceremonial things. So a life of outward ceremony and identification is worthless and even offensive unless it comes from a heart committed to actually following Christ in obedience. And genuine obedience, even when it's simple or partially informed, has great value. When a little kid comes to know Jesus and understands so little about them but says, I belong to you and I want to follow you, them following him at what they know is incredibly sweet and meaningful. And it is of infinitely more value than me or you who can maybe describe certain things pretty well in the Bible, but our hearts are getting kind of cold and kind of not that trusting. Their obedience is greater than our obedience. Obedience is not based upon how much you know. It's based upon the authenticity of the heart of the believer that's following Jesus. Presumptive, heartless ceremony is offensive. And when trying to understand God's perspective and value, God values genuine following over any religious action or ceremony, though he values those actions when they come from the heart. Verse 28, For no one is a Jew or follower of God who is merely one outward, nor is circumcision, simply outward and physical, but a Jew, Christian, is one inwardly. Circumcision or any of our ceremonies are matters of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Old Testament and New Testament, God has repeated it time and time again. Same God, Old Testament and New Testament. He desires obedient heart. A broken and contrite spirit, I desire, he says. He's not wanting the actions. He wants the heart that then has actions. True obedience, which is acted out obedience, flowing from loving and submissive heart to Christ, is what he's always wanted from us. And simply naming ourselves after God through ceremony and holding to correct truth does not please God, nor is it salvation. And I, 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 I might just say, because of who we are, this is part of the deceitfulness of sin. The longer you are a Christian, an authentic Christian, the more this can get tricky the more you could just look over your life and have some outstanding areas not submitted to the Lord and you've made space for them so long that you start to not even see them. You're just kind of covering them right up in your heart. I think these texts here, instead of us just going, well, look at those foolish people that call themselves Jews and don't really believe, just pray about yourself. Like, go before the Lord and say, God, is this in me? I'm not even aware of something in me. Is this in me? And if you are aware of perpetual resistance and rebellion against the Lord, by all means, hit your knees and ask the Lord for help. Like, get this stuff out. You understand this is written for people in such case, those who claim to be Christ or who are Christ who are holding continual sin. If you are Christ, belong to him, and holding continual sin, he will bring discipline in your life to flesh that out. If you're not Christ and you're holding the name of Jesus, holding on to perpetual sin, it's just going to deceive you and you go down deeper and deeper and deeper. Be so careful. Be so, so careful with sin. It is offensive to the Lord. It blasphemes his name. And the last words of that verse says this, his praise is not from man but from God. And this is the core seat of it all. The people that hold the name of Jesus, the people that overtly reject Jesus, and the people who hold the name of Jesus while not being under the authority of Jesus, they have not come to terms with that phrase. 
His praise is not from man, but from God. Their praise still is from man, not from God. In this passage, in, in last week's passage that, that Andrew preached, and this one here, there are four amazing things said that we gain. I mean, four almost blasphemous things that we get from God. Last week uh, describes us having eternal life. We're the ones that seek. Okay, last week you have the people that are being under judgment. Self-seeking. They're self-seeking. But what's the, what's the contrast in last week's passage? You, you should check this out this week. RMC we're talking about a little bit. The contrast is instead of self-seeking, you seek glory. <laughs> that sounds blasphemous. You seek honor. That sounds blasphemous. That sounds self-seeking, doesn't it? There's a different way. In Christ, you receive glory, you receive honor, you receive immortality. In this text here, you receive praise from God. That's a different way of life. You will either, either live to the praise and the benefits you get from people, or you will live for the praise of God. And this, the way this is said here is this is not saying living in a way whereby God receives praise by them looking at you. This here is God praising you. It's not on his knees going, oh, mighty one. No, no, no. But it's God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Blessed son or daughter of mine that I've never loved any more or any less. Look at what you've become. You are my, you are my workmanship and you have beauty because you are my workmanship. Do you want praise from God? Or are you just happy with praise from men? It's just a fundamental question that goes across the whole board. This is the problem that sat underneath them. These folks who were hypocritical, who were partial in their following Jesus, the problem was they didn't care about God. They just cared about themselves. And Paul brings it out. Our praise comes from God, not from man. And if that's the case, and we decide we want him, and we want, we want him to say, well done. We don't care what Instagram says about us or Twitter says about us or our friends say about us. We want him to say, well done. We need to listen to who he is and how he thinks. And he says, number one, come to me by Jesus because you can't come to me on your own. So hit your knees or hit your seat right now or afterwards. Just talk to us during the song. It's like, have you given your heart to Christ? Number one. Have you come and said, Lord, these things here in this text are just dripping off my life and I can't free myself. I have to be made new. I have to be rescued like an unconscious person floating in the ocean type rescued. I need to be rescued out of the ocean by you, Jesus, because only you can rescue me. I'm that bad off. Come to know him. Be counted righteous because of the work of Jesus. And in that, be made alive. Be born again. Have his spirit put in you so that then transformation here before our eyes can happen. So number one, know the Lord. Number two, I just wanted to, I just want to encourage you guys. I'm going to finish up here with just a moment of, of just silence. Just are, are, you, are you holding hypocrisy in your heart? And if you are, here's the fundamental thing. You're not seeking praise from God. You're seeking praise from something else. And maybe... You go, oh, that's horrible. I want to pray right now. Well, great, pray right now. Maybe you go like, that's horrible, but here's the horrible part. It's horrible that I don't feel horrible that it's horrible. You know what I mean? You're like, that stepped off. It's just barely there. Praise God it's barely there. The only reason you can see it's barely there is because God loves you and is exposing it to you. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads. 
And whether you can barely see it or it's clear in front of you, um, I just want to invite you, I'm going to pray for a moment and then I'm going to give you a moment just to pray after me. I want to invite you to ask God, to commit and ask God that his praise is the praise that you desire, not yours. And that he would make that true of you, that God would be God and not man. Father, I pray for us all this morning in this text, as we read through highs and lows of circumcision and law and all the complexities of it, and as we think through and see that we know that the law is written on everyone's hearts, and you're a fair judge, and our hypocrisy um, is extremely damaging to your reputation and your name and your glory. And that fueling all of these errors that we may have, Lord, is the denial of this fundamental peace. You are a God who does give praise. You are a God who loves and redeems the work of Jesus, and then you give praise to your children. And, Father, for me, I so often lose track of this. In talking to my brothers and sisters, Lord, I know we often so lose track of this. So, Lord, for those <clears throat> in the room or listening online who have not made that clear before you, who have not asked you to be their praise giver by trusting in Jesus, please move them now to reach out to you and ask you to save them through the work of Jesus. In a very similar way, Lord, for those of us who are yours, who, who feel weak in desiring your praise, we don't think it, we know it's not mattering to us like it should. Father, please draw us to your face right now. Um, give us hearts to confess it and ask you for help. Give us hearts to commit ourselves to you and your praise. Lead us, Lord, now as we pray silently. Holding the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's a work, Father, that you do through your Spirit. It happens no other way but by your Spirit. And Father, I ask that you would match your truth-bringing work this morning <coughs> by your Spirit with an internal work in us. Father, I pray that you would grant us the repentance and the faith, earnestness, that we might trust and taste of the joys of what it means to receive your praise. That we would be fixed on you and we would not be sidetracked by people. That we would be people who, by being patient and doing well, seek honor and glory and immortality. That we would not be short in our vision, but that we would wholly lean upon you. So, Father, I ask you for the work. It's only what you can do, and I know you delight in bringing joy to your children and glory to your name. We ask you to do this in Christ's name. Amen.